Thank you all so much for coming out today. As Pastor Kevin mentioned, we are continuing in our series that's looking at some basic questions that have been a part of the Christian tradition uh, since its beginning. And last week, Pastor Kevin talked about um, why did Jesus have to die? And he uh, examined the forces that went into Jesus's execution. And uh, today is a good uh, partner lesson teaching to go along with that. We will be talking about what does Jesus's death mean? So given that he did die, how are we supposed to interpret what happened? And like Pastor Kevin laid out, this is a question that is central to the Christian faith. And it is one where we've, uh, as a Christian community, have offered lots of different reflections over the centuries and millennia, uh, some of our reflections more helpful than others, and we'll try to unpack those today. Another way that you can describe this question is, uh, why thank you for the cross? Uh, I frame it that way because last week, um, while we were all here uh, singing a song, one of the phrases in a song we were singing, singing happened to be, thank you for the cross, at which point Justice looked over to me and said, why, thank you for the cross. And uh, you know, it's helpful to have an outsider, or in his case, a pre-insider's perspective into how weird uh, it can be to think about what happened to Jesus on the cross as something worth celebrating. Because justice, like many people know the factors that went into Jesus dying, they know that, that he was crucified and that he came back from the dead. But one of the things that he is learning or that we're having to explain to him is uh, why we can now reflect on that as a good thing? Why can it be something that we say thank you for? And I, uh, when, when Justice asked that question, I referred him to actually an early church father, Tertullian, who uh, expressed the answer to this question actually in the form of an equation. It goes one cross plus three nails equals four given. Hashtag blast. Tertullian, he was ahead of his time. So even though this representation of why uh, Jesus' death results in something we can be thankful for might seem silly, I am actually more concerned that some of the answers that we give in all earnestness might also be sometimes silly um, when it goes through a little bit of examination or sometimes downright harmful, either in the way that it portrays God or the way that it portrays how forgiveness works. And uh, I want us to be able to talk through that today. The more popular version of how we often talk about uh, the meaning of Jesus' death goes something like this. Um, You all have probably heard it before. Maybe you've said it yourselves. Uh, Something like God is all loving, but he is also perfectly just. And because of those two aspects of his personality, he loves people, but hates people's sinfulness. And because he is perfectly just, he cannot have fellowship with our sinfulness. And therefore, a chasm exists between us and God. And in order for that chasm to be closed, there must be punishment for our sinfulness. In other words, God has wrath or is angry at our sinfulness, and there must be a blood atonement for that. The natural consequence of that would be that we die. We are executed for the sins that we've committed against God. But God is so loving that he offered Jesus as that sacrifice in our place to close that chasm, to take that punishment for us 
so that we don't have to take it ourselves. Maybe there's a variant that's thrown into that story that, that uh, sometimes people include where the idea is that part of our sinfulness means that we are uh, under slavery or in bondage to Satan, and uh, there must be a ransom in order to free us from our, uh, our captivity under Satan. And God offered Jesus as a ransom to Satan uh, to allow for our release. So these versions of the, the story are called, um, you know, that you could, in various circles, they would be called something like penal substitutionary atonement and ransom theory. So there's a, a big word just to break it down. It's penal in the sense that God punished Jesus. It's substitutionary in the sense that God punished Jesus for my sins instead of, uh, uh, it, or Jesus did it in my place so that I could go free. And the whole idea of ransom is that, that Jesus paid the ransom or God paid the ransom in Jesus so that I could be free. Now, given that that's a, a common way that atonement is properly understood, some of you might be thinking, uh, yeah, that actually sounds great. Uh, what's the problem? And you make it sound like you're about to deconstruct it, and that's kind of scary because if that's true, what is the alternative? Um, and in, in good spark fashion, we're not all about deconstruction. I am going to criticize this view that we just shared, and it is a very common one. Um, but I am going to offer what I hope are some better ways forward that reflect some of the best thinking that our brothers and sisters in Christ have offered over the millennium. Um, so one of the, the ways that we're going to have to think about this in terms of the problems that we have with the traditional view is one is that this is a, it's a prophase view that kind of makes you wonder what on earth is going on with, with uh, God's anger. So to uh, highlight how pervasive this is, please help me finish this lyric from, from a common hymn. Uh, it goes, on the cross where Jesus died. Do you all remember the... It's the, uh, the wrath of God was satisfied. On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Is that true? Is that what happened on the cross, that God had wrath and Jesus absorbed God's wrath? Was Jesus' death a sacrificial offering to appease God's anger? Did God have to punish someone for our sins in order to forgive us? And if that's true, does it really count as forgiveness if you still have to kill someone to make it right? Is any of that how sacrifice works in the Old Testament itself? A second problem that I think comes with this traditional view is where does the empty tomb, where does the resurrection fit into this story? So in this common traditional story that I just shared with you, I didn't actually mention the resurrection at all. And if you can explain the significance of Jesus' death on the cross without mentioning Jesus coming back from the dead at all, or if Jesus coming back from the dead is an afterthought to your atonement theology, is something wrong with the way that you're explaining it? A third problem that I have, a common uh, thought that comes up when people reflect on Jesus' death on the cross, is how did white Jesus get those abs? Look at that. That's a, that's, how, how can his loss be my gains? That's what I want to know when I look at that. 
Now, they're, they're, these are all serious problems that I do have with the way we commonly think of Jesus' atonement. We'll tackle the first two, not, not this one in this lesson. That's a subject for another time. Um, but I do think that before we talk about the different ways that we can reflect on Jesus' death, it'd be help, uh, helpful to do some ground-clearing exercise, especially on what we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice. So in other words, this first part is going to have to be a PSA about PSA, or at least the way that it's commonly understood. And in this discussion, I'll, I'll offer us, my goal overall is to offer us, one, a better way of thinking about how Jesus's death can be seen as a sacrifice. Uh, number two is a better way to think about how Jesus's resurrection helps us understand um, the meaning of Jesus's death. And the third part is to offer yet other ways that stimulate our creativity in understanding Jesus's death together. So first, let's talk about sacrifice. In order to do that, we're going to have to enter a world that probably seems very foreign to many of us. It is a world in which uh, Israel did not invent. So uh, when you open your Bible and you start reading through the first several books, you, hear, you do read a lot about sacrifices and uh, atonement and rules on what to give in order to be in a relationship with God and how, the, how you, what you do reflects your relationship with God. Um, Israel and the Bible did not invent the sacrificial system that you read about in the Old Testament. That's important to remember because what God is revealing in the Old Testament is in contrast to some of the surrounding beliefs that people had about sacrifice. In the ancient world, long before Israel existed, there was this concept of if you wanted to show God that you were sorry, to show God that you were serious, or to gain favor with the gods in some way, whether it was to obtain something, uh, whether it was to, for example, you wanted to have children and you wanted to make a sacrifice to the gods of fertility in order to win favor from those gods in order for you to have a child. You could not predict weather patterns, so you offered sacrifices to gods that you thought were in control of the weather, all in the hopes that somehow they would be be able to bless you with a harvest and you wouldn't die of famine or starvation. In this world, there was an enormous amount of anxiety related to offering sacrifices to the gods, as you can imagine. You never quite knew where you stood with these gods. They were stylized as capricious, often reflecting our own insecurities in humanity. We put them onto our gods and we said, they are fickle. You can never know exactly whether they are on your side or not. They were mysterious. They were unknowable. And it was a roll of the dice to know whether you were going to make them happy or not. You never knew if you were going to say the right words at the right time, offered the right way in order for things to break in your favor. It feels a little bit like the situation with a star basketball player right now, Kawhi Leonard, who I respect very much. Uh, this, this, these are the things uh, basketball fans are interested in in the offseason. So so uh, Kawhi Leonard is one of the best players uh, in, in the league right now, in, in the National Basketball Association. What we do know is that he has demanded to be traded from his team that he has spent his entire career with, the San Antonio Spurs. He has said that he wants to move to L.A. Uh, all the other teams in the league, because of how great he is, are, are very interested. How can we get this man on our team? How can we curry his favor? The problem is, is that he has been mysterious and unknowable. People don't know. They got to figure out who can I talk to to get insight into his mind about how I can get him on my team. This is very 
dramatic news in the world of basketball. And that is very much like uh, what's going on with gods in the ancient world. People wish, some people are saying, I wish somewhere there was something written down where I knew where Kawhi Leonard's head was at uh, with where he wanted to be. In the same way, when you read about sacrifices in the Old Testament, it is not a burden that Israel feels like, you know, to follow the laws that God reveals in the Old Testament. Because what God is revealing in all of those laws is to say, I'm not like that. I'm fundamentally knowable, reliable, and you can be confident when I tell you that I'm on your side. That's why we have all those lists of laws in the Torah. It wasn't a burden. It was freeing because they knew that, okay, here is what it means to be in relationship with God. Here's what it looks like for God to be on our side. So do those laws that Israel clung to, do they teach us that in order for God to forgive sins, there must be blood? That in order for God to be whole with us again, he needs a sacrifice to appease his wrath. Not really, or at least I don't think so. Now, there was animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, in the early chapters of Leviticus, when um, there's an outline of all of the different types of sacrifices that Israel would practice in, commonly in their lives together, um, one of these categories of situations that require a sacrifice would be committing unintentional sins. In other words, there are things that you did that would be considered sinful, but you didn't know it at the time that you were doing it. And then when you realized that you had done something that you should be held guilty for, um, you would offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice involved an animal. It involved, um, in some situations, a goat or a lamb uh, or a something like that. So there were animal sacrifices for unintentional sins, but that doesn't really cover the case that we're talking about here. Jesus did not die for unintentional sins, the way we put it. There's this concept of real transgressions, intentional sins. And the question becomes, what is the atonement for real sins in the Old Testament law? Now, this uh, atonement for these real sins comes to a head in one specific holiday for Israel called the Day of Atonement. And there is a ritual that's done on the Day of Atonement with an animal in order for Israel to atone for its sins. And here's how it sets up. So there's a description of a goat that's brought forward. Uh, this, this is what they, would, they were told to do for atonement. Aaron, this is the, and he's the, the head of the priestly system, mediating on behalf of God. Aaron will press both his hands on its head, on the goat's head, and confess over it all the Israelites' offenses and all their rebellious sins, as well as their other sins, putting all these on the goat's head. And... Naturally, the way we've been trained to think about sacrifice, the way we talk about it in common Christian circles, the thing that you would expect to happen next is that then you maybe slit the goat's throat and you use his blood as offering over the altar. But that's not what happens, actually. Then he will send it away into the wilderness with someone designated for the job. The goat will carry on itself all their offenses to a desolate region. Then the goat will be released into the wild. That's actually what happens to the atonement sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The, the clearest correlation that we have to the way Christians think about what Jesus offered. So even within the Old Testament law itself, it doesn't have to be that someone has to die for people's sins. So 
we need to keep these two things in mind. One, well, it helps to point out that God didn't kill Jesus. People did. We participate in the killing of Jesus whenever we contribute to those systems that executed Jesus that Pastor Kevin talked about last week. God called God's people to be a part of the solution. And in our own brokenness and sinfulness and in our own pursuit of evil, we found ourselves very much a part of the problem, even though we were intended to be part of the solution. We participated in the very systems that lead to death and alienation and hostility. And when Jesus came as a representative of God, we executed him. The second part that I think is super helpful to understand how is it that Jesus' death works as a sacrifice is to realize that God forgiving humanity for killing Jesus is the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that's being made, and it's being made by God. There's an Old Testament scholar who specializes in understanding the ancient context for these sacrifices and how sacrifice in the Old Testament relates to Christian understanding in the first century, named John Goldingay. And here's how he sums it up. He says, The ordinary meaning of the Hebrew word most commonly uh, translated forgive is carry. It's what parents do for their children's wrongdoing and what God was doing with Israel through Old Testament times. It was a process that came to its climax with the cross, which is the logical end to the Old Testament story. Seeing the way the relationship between God and Israel worked helps us see why the cross was necessary. Through God's life with Israel, God was paying the price for that relationship, making the sacrifices to keep it going. God's people keep doing their worst to God, so eventually God paid the ultimate price for them. God showed them that even killing God cannot put God off from relating to them. God will just come back from the dead. That is what the, that's the sacrifice that's being made. It's not a punishment to appease God's wrath. It is God deciding that he will forgive Israel for what they have done and so pursue them all the more, even though they have rejected him. So if you want to use sacrificial imagery to describe what Jesus' death means, sure, that's great. Use it this way. The cross shows us how much God is willing to sacrifice to keep the relationship going, and that's beautiful. And that's one way to look at it. But the New Testament writers offer other ways as well. In fact, for the first 1,000 years or so of church history, this sacrificial imagery was not the main way or the most common way that Christians talked about what it means for Jesus's death to be atoning for us. In order to talk about what the more common metaphor is, I think first we have to do some level setting on the world that they were living in and that we live in today. Some of you will recognize this image if you watch Stranger Things from uh, Netflix. So Stranger Things is one of those shows that does a beautiful job of portraying this world um, beyond the world that we can see with our own eyes, where there are dark cosmic evil forces that interlock and at different times overlap with the world that we experience ourselves. This is uh, the, the way that the, the language that they use to describe this other world is called the upside down. It's the upside down version of the earth that they experience. They are uh, operating from the premise, the early Christians, that evil is real. It is both natural, 
and supernatural. And there are forces inside of us and outside of us that we can see with our own eyes and that we can't see with our own eyes that are in this world and beyond this world that oppose God and are bent on selfishness and destruction and chaos. And Jesus saw himself as the one through whom God was going to defeat all of them. So the more common image that early Christians used to describe what happened on the cross was victory. In particular, it was victory over all of these forces that we described. Sin, evil, oppression, the system. Jesus came to destroy all of them, the ultimate consequence of all of them being death. New Testament writers relied heavily on the metaphor of Jesus' death being a victory over death itself. One New Testament writer says the very reason Jesus came to earth was to destroy the works of the devil. Another writer says Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free, those, free all of those uh, whose lives were held in slavery by fear of death. For the apostle Paul, this is a basic premise of what it means to, to believe in the good news. In his letter to the church in Corinth, he's encountering a community that is expressing some skepticism about how this whole life after, life after death thing works. Like, how does it actually work to die and then come back with a resurrected body in the way Jesus did? And so Paul offers some explanation, but in order to do that, he first starts from the beginning. He defines the very good news, the basic original good news that he preached. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you. And then he defines it. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. Already you can see in his articulation of the good news, there are the, both of these parts that we decided were very important to understanding the meaning of Jesus' death. You can't just talk about Jesus' death. You also have to talk about the fact that he rose on the third day. And Paul connects both of them as being in line with the scriptures. In other words, both parts— Jesus dying for our sins, rising on the third day, they together form Israel's story. He later describes how Jesus' death results in his death and resurrection results in victory. It's described as God's victory over death beginning in Jesus, and it's working its way through us in his body. And one day, the life-giving, death-destroying power of God will consume everything. That's a process that began in Jesus, is working through us, and will culminate fully in the end. And this is how Paul describes the end. He says, then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Jesus dying on the cross and coming back from the dead is the upending of death itself. The early church's encounter with the crucified and risen Jesus caused them to believe that this was the beginning of the end for death, that Satan, evil, sinfulness, chaos, the system, the upside down, whatever it is that you want to call it, its days are numbered when the day happened, that the day occurred that Jesus came back from the dead. The system is on notice. So what happened on the cross? Well, 
We've talked about two ways of talking about it so far. Was what happened on the cross like a sacrifice to end all sacrifices? Was it victory over death? Of course. It's all the above. There's plenty of room. But it can also mean so many other things. Early Christians didn't use sacrificial imagery because they had to, as if it was the only way that you could explain what Jesus' death meant. They used sacrificial imagery because it resonated with the context that they were in. They lived in a world of temples and sacrifices and atonement. And so they looked at that and they saw Jesus' death as a statement on that entire system. It's an unfortunate lack of creativity on our part, I think, that the main metaphor we've used as Christians in our context a lot of the time is this sacrificial imagery, especially a bastardized version of the sacrificial imagery that we talked about earlier, when there are so many other metaphors that we can use. One of the ones I prefer to use in my own thoughts and the way that I talk about Jesus' death to others is this idea of victory over death, mainly because unlike the sacrificial system, victory over death is a universal human longing, and death is a universal human experience. So I think there's some value in leaning into that metaphor among all of the other metaphors that we can use. And that's really all that these New Testament writers were trying to do. These followers of Jesus were trying to use words to describe the indescribable, all-encompassing, all-conquering love that Jesus displayed on the cross. And they were trying to wrap their minds around what happened when they encountered the risen Jesus after that happened. So they came up with all sorts of pictures and stories and metaphors to make sense of what had happened. And it's important to note, too, that the early church had never prioritized one story over the other. They embraced the creativity and they embraced the diversity in telling these stories. So they said things like, the cross is like reconciliation. Reconciliation is imagery from the world of social relationships. It's how people get along with each other. Except for the Apostle Paul, he sees Jesus' death not just as reconciliation that allows us to be at peace with each other or us to be at peace with God. He describes it as reconciliation with all things. In other words, this image, the way Paul is using it, is to think of what's happening in Jesus' death as the place where the universe, formerly at war within itself, finds cosmic peace. It's not just about you being absolved of your personal guilt or feeling that you are now in a righteous standing before God. God has bigger things in mind when he began a work in Jesus' death and resurrection. But there are other images as well. What about the language of redemption that the Apostle Paul also uses? Redemption is a word from the world of economics and finance. It's what happens when something has lost its value and it's gaining its value back or it's been repurchased. Paul uses that language to describe what's happening when Jesus died on the cross. Or how about the language that the Apostle Paul uses in other places? He uses the word justification to describe what's going on. Justification is legal language. It comes from the world of courtrooms. Justification is what Paul means when he says that we were in a guilty state and God has decided in our favor because of what he has done with Jesus. Jesus himself uses a couple different metaphors to describe his own uh, understanding of his death. He uses language of a seed needing to die so that it can bear fruit like a harvest. He also 
uses bread language. He describes his body as needing to be broken in order to bring life and feed anyone who is, who is ever hungry. Sacrifice, victory, redemption, justification, harvest, broken bread. And that's just the beginning. How about you? You got any stories or images or metaphors? How is God destroying evil and bringing life through you and in you to the places that you exist in? What's the cross like in your world? Let's talk about it. We can bring all of our images forward together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the reality that your son who represented you like no one else was innocent and died on the cross and that you decided to take that death and make it something beautiful and something that we can be thankful for. Thank you for bringing life in Jesus. Thank you for beginning a good work in him that we know is unstoppable and that will culminate in bringing life to everything around us. You are so good and deserving of praise and fellowship. Please stimulate our imagination and creativity to come up with ever more beautiful ways to help us understand what you did in Calvary. Help us to do it together. Help us to do it as a community and help us tell great stories. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, before you go, I actually have a question for you because we have just a few more a few minutes here. Um, when you first became a Christian, did you learn like the penal substitutionary? And then what was it that kind of, I mean, this is amazing. What shifted for you and how did that shift? Because I think the idea that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins is just so ingrained in our religious identity and many of us in our tradition. I'm just kind of curious uh, if you remember sure. kind of the catalyst or the shifts or the changes that caused you to, to move in, in a different direction. Yeah, that, that's fair. So to, uh, to increase sympathy, I was going to say, and I just didn't, going to point out that that story, the traditional understanding that I characterized, that's one that I told many times. That was the understanding that I had when I first became a follower of Jesus. And that was the one that I've shared with many people uh, over the years. The shift started happening for me when I started trying to understand how sacrifice works in the Old Testament itself. I think what a lot of followers of Jesus will do is we'll take that traditional understanding of penal substitutionary atonement and we'll try to make it fit into what the Old Testament is saying without trying to take the Old Testament on its own terms. When I read through the Old Testament and tried to understand how sacrifice works there, then I started seeing holes in the logic, where to me, it doesn't seem like that, that it is ever laid out that the logic in the Old Testament for sacrifices is to appease God's wrath. And if so, what is going on for a New Testament writer to say, hey, you know how when you read about the suffering servant in Isaiah, that's Jesus. He's being offered as a sacrifice. I'm trying to, trying to understand what the New Testament writer could have meant if they were trying to be faithful to how sacrifices actually worked in the Old Testament. Uh, I started out the series saying that our beliefs matter. They make a difference in how we live. What in your uh, perspective, in your opinion is the difference in how our faith is lived out. If we live under a penal substitutionary idea of the cross versus living under victory and right. redemption and rescue and reconciliation view of the cross. What do you, in your opinion, what is the actual practical output of a person's life if 
they make that shift? What, what would that look sure. like? Sure. So I think one of the big ways, and, and I don't at all mean to say that this is what uh, the, like everybody who espouses that that traditional view that I laid out before um, goes down this road, but often that caricature of God that I described before, where God is wrathful and needs to be appeased before He can forgive, I think that that promotes a character of God where God actually is angry, and that Jesus is very loving, but God is not. And that in order for us to be forgiven and forgive each other, somebody's got to pay. And to me, what that misses out on is just the beautiful story is that God forgives not because something needed to die to make it happen. God forgives because he wants to. That's who he is. And, and I think that um, also that portrays God as needing violence in order to accomplish his purposes in a way that I don't believe at all is true. I think that the better ways of looking at Jesus' death acknowledge that God is not using violence at all in order to accomplish uh, saving humanity. Rather, he's taking the violence that we all exhibit towards each other and exhibited towards Jesus, and he's turning it on its head and saying, I will take that violence on, and I will offer back nothing else but love and life. That's how I understand it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, everybody, uh, thank Omer uh, once again.